Welcome to Well Grounded. This is Randy Conan from the Red River Farm Network. And this is Jason Menke from Acres and Shares. This podcast brings together experts from the world of agriculture and real estate. We'll talk about farmland values, industry trends, and the economy. In this edition of Well Grounded, our guest is Damian Mason. Damian is a businessman, agriculturist, speaker, podcaster, author, and consultant. Damian speaks on two subjects he knows best, business and agriculture. Since 1994, he has spoken to over 2,400 audiences in all 50 states and seven foreign countries. Damian is a graduate of Purdue University. When he's not traveling for work, he can be found on his Indiana farm with his wife Lori or escaping from winter at their Arizona residence. Welcome, Damian. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Damien, you are no stranger to the podcast world. Uh, please tell us a little bit about your podcast, just to give a little intro from your perspective. Sure. Uh, about four years ago, I began the Business of Agriculture podcast. I talk about uh, big issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, and fiber. Um, uh, you know, we go beyond the charts and the graphs, and we talk about uh, marketplace issues. Uh, as I point out, my degree is in agricultural economics. I can do charts and graphs, but uh, I don't like it. Uh, I, I, I think I slept through the whole futures uh, commodity trading classes. I'm more focused on marketplace issues, things that are happening out here in the, in the big picture. Uh, I have a background in comedy from, uh, from college to corporate, then I went into comedy. And um, I always point out that being a comedian is about being an observer. So I try to always bring the whole thing of uh, being a professional observer with uh, an ag with an ag background, an ag pedigree into this whole thing. So that's what I do with my podcast is talking about big picture issues, things that I see are impacting us a lot about the future, a lot about the present. Um, and, uh, and then I, I wrote a book uh, called Food Fear, uh, which is uh, released two years ago. It's about the past, present, and future of agriculture, and then also big things that we're going to face, food fights, uh, the politicization of, of uh, food and agriculture, uh, and um, where that's going to leave us. So that's kind of the, the, the direction I always take things. Well, we're excited to have you on the podcast. Um, we, uh, we started this spring, and we've had the, the numbers guys on, so we had somebody from North Dakota State University Extension talking about their survey We've had somebody on from the Minneapolis Fed. We've had uh, uh, Michael Swanson from Wells Fargo Economist. So what we're excited to hear is just kind of your your broad-based uh, perspective on trends that you see in agriculture that uh, may impact farmland. Sure. I saw that you, uh, you, you're, bringing in, you're bringing in the, uh, the, the uh, a different realm now. You brought in all kinds of financial guys. I know Michael Swanson. He and I have crossed paths a number of times on the speaking circuit. So I saw you brought in uh, people like that, um, and now you're bringing in the generalist. Um, <clears throat> okay, so farmland, first off, if this entire podcast that you have is only ever going to talk about farmland values, at some point in another two years, you're going you're gonna to sort of flatline because, <laughs> because uh, of what's going to happen. Um, what do I see from my perspective? You know, uh, I just tuned into a Purdue University webinar a week and a half ago, and I, you know, I went to Purdue and uh, I keep up since it's my in-state uh, land-grant school. They're saying we're up 12 to 14 percent year over year on land values. That seems pretty uh, accurate. Um, it's pretty pretty obvious. You, you, know, you pay attention to things. We're sitting out here at three to four percent interest rates. Uh, cheap interest 
cheap interest in an inflationary period, which we are in an inflationary period, a year and a half ago, I started telling everybody, I said, trust me, guys, when you throw trillions of dollars of federal money out into the marketplace and pay people not to work, everything then has less value. If you're getting paid $600 a week to, to do nothing or $1,000 a week to do nothing, then the price of doing something obviously goes up from there. You know, minimum wages are price floors, if you will. So we essentially, by creating a, a new minimum wage, de facto minimum wage, by throwing so much money out there to do nothing, when you throw when you throw 30 or 50 grand a year's equivalent value to, to do nothing but sit on your couch, then the cost of being productive goes up from that point. Again, that's a price floor. So <clears throat> we are in inflationary times. I have read the articles in the Wall Street Journal that say, oh, we're only at 5% inflation. I'm like, well, good. Tell that to the gas prices, which are up 50%. Tell that to used car prices, which are up 40%. Tell that to real estate values, suburban and, and uh, residential real estate values, which are up 20% year over year. Again, we can let the Fed pretend that we've only got 5% inflation because they'll put whatever bundle of goods into the inflationary index that they want. But again, I can just keep naming sector after sector where we've seen more than that. Farmland value would be a good example. Is it good for us? Yes. Generally, uh, when your assets go up, it's it's good for you, right? So <clears throat> let's say we are, according to Purdue, up 14% year over year. Now, I got a chart that I printed off that Purdue gave me. I know this is radio, so nobody can see this. They're saying percent change from 2020. Uh, top, I'm in Northeast Indiana, and that's what this chart's all about, uh, just Indiana, because it's, it's Purdue. They're saying that 9.9% uh, change in top top farm ground uh, here in Northeast Indiana, 6.6% year over year. But then even though this chart came out, they said, we're expecting another about that much again. So again, they're talking 12 to 14%, they think by the end of this year from last year. So that beats what they say inflation is, but again, does it really? Um, they'll say inflation's only at 5%. And so we're talking about 10 and 14%, possibly 12%, whatever on, on farmland. You're saying, oh, so we're beating the inflation index. Well, again, you are, unless you want to include gas, residential real estate, uh, you know, used cars, and a, a number, number of other categories. So I would say categorically, <clears throat> maybe we're really not even exceeding what is happening in the rest of the marketplace on land values. Um, these interest rates are not going to move. Uh, you know, if you are a student of history or of economics or of both, as I choose try to be. Um, <laughs> when the federal government is borrowing trillions of dollars, does that same federal government then want to increase the interest they are paying? Of course, the answer is no. So uh, I would say that we're probably going to be in these low interest rates for a long time. Um, will that be a driver of land values? Presumably, yes. Again, also <clears throat> inflationary pressures from everywhere else. So we like to think that it's got to do with commodity prices, which it somewhat does. But remember, there's also a tremendous amount of cash sitting around. A lot of money is sitting there looking for somewhere to go. I have people that are calling me sometimes saying, hey, you got anywhere for me to stick some money. <laughs> so um, I think that we're probably going to be uh, seeing some pressure on these land values for a, a little while. Also, remember, there's the fear factor. What we have going on with the whole COVID thing. We have uh, turmoil 
um, folks like that, which is tangible, that which they can touch, that which they feel good about, you know, gold, real estate, hard assets, things like that. So I'd say that we're probably going to see some pressure on land prices for at least the next couple of years. Is, uh... <clears throat> CD rates are, are still pretty low. Um, up in our neck of the woods, you're probably looking at a two and a half to three percent cap rate. Um, Listen to your podcast uh, from earlier this year. You had a, a real estate broker out of Indiana. And uh, I, I would say in general up in, in uh, eastern North Dakota, western Minnesota, we probably have a, a smaller percentage of investors that are buying land. Um, uh, couldn't give you an exact number, but it's probably closer to what I see, you know, closer to 5 to 10% as opposed to the 40% uh, uh, your guest uh, had, had uh, referenced. Yeah, well, of course, <clears throat> it, it's, you know, let's talk about the, there's a reason that the ag networks talk about the I states. There's still an infatuation with Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa. And uh, I, I love North Dakota, by the way. Uh, I, I love coming up there and working. For some reason, your people tend to hire me only to come up there and do speaking engagements in December, November, December, January, February, and March. I've never actually seen uh, living plants in North Dakota. I've only ever seen snow and snurt. I'm kidding. I've actually been there in the summer, but generally speaking, um, in places like where I live, yeah, there's probably a, a bit more investor money or outside money. I always made the crack that when I go to a farm auction, uh, they ask you to put on a name badge. I'm just going to put on my name badge investor from Chicago, because that's always the fun thing here in rural Indiana. Did you hear about that farm is sold? Who the hell bought it? Paid that much money for it? I heard of some investors from Chicago. If every piece of uh, farm ground around me that was actually transacted was indeed bought by investors from Chicago, it would all be owned by investors from Chicago. So that's the rumor mill. That's the that's the farmer bumpkin uh, coffee shop talk. The reality is, uh, yeah, there's more more investor money here. I mean, I guess you'd call me an investor. I don't farm my land. I rent it out. Uh, to a large-scale dairy operator. So I guess you'd call me an investor. And yeah, there's a little bit more of that that probably happens uh, here than does uh, where you are. But that's also probably a symptom of population. You know, there's 7 million people in North Dakota, I'm sorry, in Indiana. And we're about, uh, you know, half the size of North Dakota, which has you know, 700,000 people. More, more, so cow, more, more cows than people. Yeah, so I think we're about... I think we have about 10 times more people here than you do with about half the amount of land. So it's, um, I think the, the issue there is that uh, the guy that drives down the road and says, you know what, we've, we've got a pretty good portfolio. Maybe we ought to buy 80 acres over there. So I, I love your uh, Chicago investor comment. Um, the other one that, that I've gotten over the last 20 plus years is that even if it's not good hunting land, um, people who live out of state think that they've got the best hunting land. It compares to Montana or Colorado and that we should advertise in the Wall Street Journal. And, uh, you know, those buyers are about as common as the Chicago investor, right? <laughs> yeah. You mean that the, the folks that are in North Dakota that think, well, you know what we ought to do? We'll get 10 times what it's worth if we just put an ad in the Wall Street Journal and say it's hunting property. Is that the idea? Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, we have that symptom. Uh, remember, the person that needs their land to be worth a whole bunch of money. Um, I, I uh, am the youngest of nine children and we did not come from much. My father was actually the son of a herdsman. So they just grew up. Uh, he grew up milking other people's cows. So a little chunk of ground that I was raised on a couple miles from where I'm sitting right now. Not worth a tremendous amount. It was the kind of ground that nobody else wanted, which is why my father was able to acquire it when he's in his 20s. Um, 
we did here when mother started failing, when then uh, maybe, you know, your nephew sort of innocently over beer says, so I guess that like grandma's farm's worth $10,000 an acre. And I about spit my beer. I said, who the hell told you that? Well, I guess my dad said he read something. I'm like, yeah, your dad read something in the Wall Street Journal that said that a chunk of ground in Illinois sold for $10,000 an acre. And therefore he extrapolated that to this. That's apples to oranges. Uh, so so um, generally, it's my finding that uh, those who think things are worth a whole bunch are those who need it to be worth a whole bunch. <laughs> Great perspective. And counting on mom's assets. Expenses, I think, are the one, the big thing that kind of cor- uh, extrapolate or correlate with uh, some of the land prices, too, I think. I don't buy... Uh, input other than you know five gallons worth of glyphosate per year to spray my fence lines and my uh, hiking trails i don't buy the kind of inputs that our listeners buy right i mean it'd be insulting to a scalable farm producer for us to think that we know what their books look like in terms of what they're buying and selling you know i buy uh, 100 gallons worth of diesel a year, a uh, few hundred gallons worth of gasoline a year, five gallons worth of glyphosate, two and a half gallons worth of 2,4-D. I mean, my inputs are minuscule, but I do keep up because of my business. They tell me that fertilizer across the board is basically going to double. So if you're heading into 2022 and you're looking at doubling of fer- fertility um, uh, you know, inputs, that's a hell of a big jump. Um, we know that chemicals are going to go up. There's even now discussion that we're going to not only have big price movements, what about availability? You you know, we got supply chain disruptions. I do a thing. I have a thing called the Business of Agriculture Success Group, uh, sort of branching off of my writing and my podcasting and my speaking. Um, About uh, 20 ag professionals give me $100 a month to be in this group. We meet online a couple times a month and have discussions. So we also bring in industry experts. And one of these uh, people that's on our group is manages an association of ag retailers. They tend to be more out West. He tells me that take a container coming across the pond, a container coming from Asia, you know, a container that we ship stuff in, whether it's basketballs or, you know, uh, farm chemicals that it used to be like $4,000 to get that uh, container moved. And now it's like five times that. I don't pay for a lot of shipping directly. We all do indirectly because obviously our our goods. When you start five timesing the transportation because there's a, a, a shortage, when you start five timesing transportation, when you start doubling fertilizer, when you start putting 14% and 25%, you know, these, these numbers on anything, petrochemicals, containers. I got a buddy in the beer business. He was over here last night having beers. And um, he says, you know, uh, when the whole pandemic thing happened, the brewery stayed open and they can make the beer, but they're not putting it in kegs because there's no stadiums that are open. There's no bars and restaurants that are open. So where do you drink draft beers? Generally at stadiums, bars, restaurants, right? So now everybody's drinking more than they did. They're not going out, so they're staying at home. They're drinking more, but they ain't got no cans. All of a sudden, the brewers didn't have cans, uh, and now it's bottles because there's a return back to bars, and so bottle supply went down. So they're having a hard time getting bottles at the breweries. The average person sits in their house, uh, you know, and gets told to stay home and watch Netflix while we flatten the curve for two weeks, which became 18 months. 
and they think, oh, gosh, I guess everything else is going to be fine. It's like, well, how the hell would that happen? How would this not impact everywhere? If you're not going to work and doing something, uh, then there's somebody else is doing the same thing. So we're going to see this, it looks like, for at least another year on the supply issues of the ag input. So it's not just going to be a function of price increases. I believe there will be actual deficits of availability from my resources, and people are telling me that. Will that tend to keep a lid on land prices then? Uh, I don't know. We got a lot of money sitting around out here. We got a lot of people that their financial position improved. Again, it's inflationary, but you've got a lot of folks, Randy, that the, the, that received their, their entire compensation. You know, my friend was down here swimming with his kids in my pond. He says, I got paralegals in my law firm. I got legal secretaries in my law firms. Um, one of them's married to uh, a government employee. Their employment never changed. They, they made the same amount of money and the government threw them like $10,000 of money. Now, you say, well, that's not a lot. That doesn't buy much. Well, again, extrapolate over a populace. When you keep throwing money after money after money, you got a lot of people whose financial position improved during this whole pandemic. And, um, you know, household savings at one point was uh, like 40%, which that's never happened before. Usually we're sitting around like five, three to 5%. So will land prices have a lid on them? It looks like there's a lot of money in the countryside. It looks like there's a lot of money that is looking to be deployed. And again, the interest rates haven't moved. So will the input, the fact that we can't maybe get inputs the way we want them, move that? I say not because the inputs, availability to get your hands on uh, glyphosate is probably going to be very short term. So I'd say the, the market uh, market probably will see through that. And, and not only that, but you know, we're, we've been in a drought up here. We've had some rain over the last week to 10 days, but you know, my, my hunch is that the way the administration's handing out money, there'll be a disaster program, um, yet again this year. Maybe. I think the bigger thing that we all need to admit, I think everybody in the Red River, uh, radio network and, and all your listeners, you understand this. North Dakota should basically be wheat and, uh, and CRP, um, <laughs> Nobody should be farming up there. You should let us do the heavy lifting here in Indiana so I can charge more cash rent. You people should just have some wheat and some pheasant property and be happy ever after and let us do the heavy lifting so I can charge more cash rent. That's what I really think your listeners need to hear. <laughs> awesome. Uh, as we wrap up, any anything else you'd like to share, Damien? <laughs> well, besides pissing off all your listeners? No, that's it. Uh, I, uh, no, I, I, uh, they know I'm joking because I'm a big hit in North Dakota. I, I love coming up there and working with those people. I guess uh, we, we like to call it North Dakota. North Dakota. Um, anything else? Well, we can talk forever about these things. Uh, you, you know, one year from now, your listeners come back and say, hey, you were wrong about this. You were right about this. Remember, it's it's uh, economists are kind of like weathermen in that uh, nobody ever goes and holds them accountable for what they get wrong. Um I don't think I'm wrong about this. You know, in 2012, I went to a land auction a mile from here on some property that I, in hindsight, wish I had purchased. I didn't because I had been telling everybody that would listen to me, we are at a high watermark. It turns out I was off by about a year, year and a half. 2013 trending into 14 is when we saw the high water mark because land values tend to follow uh, the broader ag market in general. So, so I missed it by a little bit. Turns out that property sold by about 10 to 15% less than any other comparable 
property would have. Just uh, they didn't have the right buyers, didn't have you know timing, whatever. So in hindsight, I wish I had uh, bought it. I didn't have any of my financials in order at the time. I wasn't even ready. I just went there as a spectator. Um, so why am I saying that? Well, if you listen to old timers, they'll say, yep, every time that I didn't buy something, I thought I was too high. Now look at it. There's some truth to that. Um, Agricultural real estate uh, tends to have been a a good appreciating asset over time. That doesn't mean that it never goes down because I've had people say that to me also. Just like I told you, I didn't purchase the thing in 2012. I've had people say, well, how can you ever go wrong? Ain't making any more of it. When people start saying that, it means they're foolish. You know, there's, there's a lot of things you can invest in. My mother and father in 1981 purchased 50 acres across the road from the farm where I was raised. We finally were not going to be broke. Uh, we were finally climbing, you know, climbing, getting ahead. You know, a bunch of the kids were gone out of the house. There I was, little uh, 12-year-old me at home. My mom and dad paid 18% interest to buy 50 acres of land for $2,500 per acre. Within one year, it was worth $1,200 an acre, and we were still obligating an 18% note. So the idea that you can't lose, that somehow farmland never goes down in value, is is a ridiculous statement. Um, you know, it is still an asset class. Uh, is it worth more than that today? Yes, but there's a tremendous amount of pain and burn, uh, and I felt it. I, in fact, obligated that note for my parents from the time I was 12 years old, going out and working every day after school. So, you know, be cautious. Uh, you know, when everybody's running, I tend to walk. When everybody's walking, I think it's smart to run. Right now, I'm not running. It uh, looks like everybody else is running. I'm probably going to walk. Damien, before we close here, how do people find your podcast? DamienMason.com. Thanks to Damien Mason for being part of this conversation. The Well-Grounded Podcast is a presentation of Acres and Shares and the Red River Farm Network. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. It's also available at rrfn.com and acresandshares.com. Until next time, I'm Randy Conan. And I'm Jason Menke.